Hey guys, this is Rick Godwin, pastor of Summit Church here in San Antonio. Thanks for joining us today. You know, we're excited to have you on our podcast. Our goal is to inspire you and to challenge you and help everyone realize their full potential in Christ. Now enjoy the message. We're gonna begin a brand new series on the power of hope, H-O-P-E, the power of hope. And today, we're gonna talk about how God grows hope in us. It can grow, it can increase. Hope is the anticipation of good. That's it, the anticipation of good. Now, that's deeper and bigger than optimism. Optimism is the tendency to believe things will turn out well, but hope comes from somewhere else. It's the conviction that in God, my life and my efforts have meaning no matter how the situation turns out. I'm in the hand of God. So hope requires three ingredients, imagining, desiring, and believing. And I want you to imagine right this morning that you're a person of hope, not hopeless, but hopeful. It's part of how you grow hope. Tom Moore is a British man, 99 years old. He had hip surgery. He was battling recovery from COVID. He decided he would combine rehab with fighting COVID by walking just 10 lengths in his little garden for each of the 10 days that he had to quester, and he would invite people online to sponsor him in his little walk. His goal was to get about 10 bucks a length and maybe raise $1,000 for charity. Somehow the thought of a 99-year-old World War II vet who broke his hip, recovering from COVID, walking to help other people, caught people's imagination. Well, he hoped to raise 1,000 bucks. At the last count, he's gotten over 650,000 donations for more than 23 million, million. I would say he's seriously overshot. Here's the thing. You can't do more than you hope to do if you don't hope. So imagine you have a hope that just doesn't give up. You find a way. You can't be stopped. Imagine you're the kind of person who can look pandemic, recession, fear, isolation, uncertainty, political unrest, look it square in the eye, and you're convinced in your soul that with God at your side, better days are ahead. That's a hopeful person. Imagine being so filled with hope that other people find inspiration and joy just being around you. Imagine you wake up in the morning eager for the day. Imagine you find a hope that won't give out. Well, about 50 years ago, a famous football player named Joe Namath, Broadway Joe, wrote a book. And the title of the book was, I Can't Wait Till Tomorrow, Because I'll Get Better Looking Every Day. Today, Joe Namath is 80 years old, and I promise you, I promise you, if he is looking forward to tomorrow, it ain't because he's getting better looking every day. Oh, Joe. Well, imagine when you go to bed at night, you can't wait till tomorrow because you're convinced you're going to find God there. Imagine your life is filled with noble goals, wonderful hopes, significant plans, and you celebrate the victories, and you learn from your failure, and you never get stuck in the past because the future's calling your name. 
Here's my text, Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's a big God of hope. There ain't no hopeless situations, ever, not for a believer. So we're learning this morning how to actually grow in hope and what you and I can do to become more hope-filled kind of people. So we're going to do that by looking at a man who in the Psalms actually talks about hope more than any other person in the Bible. Guess his name? David. And we're going to walk through David's life to see how a world-class hoper grows hope so you and I can do the same thing. You ready? Number one, get really clear on what it is you hope for. Get real clear on what it is you hope for. So one day, David's just a kid, the youngest of eight brothers. He got called in front of this old prophet named Samuel who poured a jar of oil over his head and told him one day, David, not their brothers, none of them, you are going to be king one day. Then the prophet left town. Well, David and the other brothers did what you and I do. Well, they went back to work. David went back to herding the sheep. And who knows for how many years he just kept doing his old job. Nothing changed externally except one thing. David has a hope. David has a hope for a future. David starts dreaming about what kind of king he'd be, how he would unite Israel, how he hoped he would lead people to God and bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, write songs, play music, build the temple, and have an heir and become a kingdom. Well, let me invite all of us today to take what you might think of as a hope inventory. You know what an inventory is. Well, high hope people take inventory of their hopes. Low hope people just have a vague collection of jumbled up wishes that come and go. So this week, take a little bit of time and do a hope inventory. Start by listing what you really hope for, not what you think you should hope for. Just be honest. You might start with these categories. First, what do I want to have? That's a decent hope. It could involve tangible things. I want to have enough money to retire. Uh, I, I want to live in this kind of a place, a home. I want to drive this kind of a car. But I also have hope for intangible things like good friends. I hope to have a joyful family, a healthy body, a happy marriage. Those are having hopes. Secondly, what do I hope to do? For David, he's working as a shepherd, but he was hoping he'd do great things as a king someday. So what do you want to do with your work, your career, your volunteering? What kind of experiences do you hope to engage in? Travel, play, vacation? See, all that stuff does matter to God. What do you hope to learn? What skills do you hope to acquire? Get really clear on that. Third, what do I hope to become? Maybe you hope to be less fearful, a little more courageous, more wise, maybe more loving, maybe more patient. You can elbow somebody near you. And I'm getting the elbow myself as one who needs to be a little more patient. Maybe you hope to become a better truth teller or be freed from some addiction that's plagued you for years or somebody who expresses more servanthood around the house. 
See, what are you hoping for in your relational, physical, vocational, spiritual life? Well, great hopers have goals for the future. They don't drift. They press on to the mark. So get clear on what you want your future to look like. Don't be foggy about it. Don't get an all-state policy that just covers everything. No. Get a vision. What do I want to do? What do I want to be? Maybe it's a mess right now. Maybe it looks impossible. Sure did for David. Sure did for Joseph. But they had a hope, and that hope ultimately came true. What's one step? Uno. One step you could take today to start moving towards your tomorrow. And while you consider that, listen to this scripture that powerfully reminds you and me that it's God who gives birth to hope in us. He gives me the reason to hope. I'm reading from uh, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. And it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer some grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So it's pretty obvious. Jesus Christ is the source of my ultimate hope. But there's a role in becoming a hoper that you have and only you can play, and that's the next step that great hopers always take. Step two, take responsibility for your hoping. Take responsibility for your hoping. A hopeful person is somebody for whom hoping has become a habit and you want to be around them in any crisis. Their hope is not fickle. The weather doesn't change my hope. The circumstances don't change my hope. Your age doesn't change your hope. What happened to you doesn't change your hope. It's kind of like a thermometer. A thermometer just tells you what the temperature is, but a thermostat sets the temperature. Hope should be our thermostat. I'm going to walk in my own temperature, not what the culture says, not what my race says, not what my past says. I've got a hope for the future. I'm, that hope's a thermostat. It's covering me in a, a controlled atmosphere, coming in and going out, just like Israel. They were in a desert, but the desert was outside of their atmosphere. They lived in a controlled environment. That's exactly what God wants us to walk in in an evil world. You, you alone, set your hope level. One of the most famous stories about David is his encounter with an enemy called Goliath who had shattered Israel's hope. That is, until David showed up. David told his older brother, Eliab, I can take this dude. I can take him. Now, what's kind of striking about it is his brother Eliab didn't say, go for it, David. I'm with you, man. I'm proud of you. Go, little brother. Nope. He told David, you can't beat Goliath. Who do you think you are? Stop running off at the mouth. Here's what I'll promise you. I'll promise you that when you dare to hope, a lot of people, even in church, will tell you what you cannot do, cannot have, cannot be, 
cannot become. You're too young. You're too old. You're, you're divorced. You're a single parent. You're this. You're that. And on and on these mealy mouth grubby people go. I'm telling you, it is. They are so jealous of your, your attempt to be better than you are, to have something they don't have because you're willing to pay the price for it. All they can do is throw stones. I mean, we've got religious people throwing stones at the Asbury Revival, a little nowhere place in a nowhere school, little bitty, and God does something sovereign, and it just makes all the big shots mad. It's a wonderful thing. When God, you can't imitate it, you can't, it's just God. God just shows up and he says, tough luck, what are you going to do about it? He showed up in Nazareth, a truck stop, a nowhere place, and picked out a little girl named Mary, you'll do. He chose David. David's eighth born. He's in the back of the line. God chooses the back of the line, not the front of the line. He always likes to do that, to show how strong he is. I love that. I love it. He's welcome here anytime he wants to do something like that. Go for it, Lord. See, but people will tell you what they assume you cannot do. I don't know why, but something about moving forward with big plans, high energy, great dreams, just brings out the doubters and the naysayers. Yeah. Martin Luther King, this is Black History Month. Martin Luther King had a hope. He said, I have a dream. He called it a dream. But his hope was that black people could have equality, equal civil rights that they did not have because of the color of their skin. Well, he started small, protests, a march, simple, nonviolent, maybe a sit-in, maybe a protest, and there were beatings, and there were uh, rocks thrown, and there were jailings. It was a rough patch, but there had to be action to his hope to make it come true, and it ultimately cost him his life for the freedom enjoyed today, and I'm saying, but that hope continues to burn to this day, and it, it set the world on fire. The I have a dream. I have a, what's your hope, you know? I looked at family I came out of, and I said, I hope I never live like that. I hope you do. See how hope goes? My hope is that some of you will get off your chair and say, I'm not going to live this way anymore. I can have a bigger life. I can have a better life. I can have a more fruitful life. I don't have to live like this. What, not with God. God can make this thing different. I have a hope that my future can change, and it can. So that naysaying and negativity didn't stop David. David just starts telling other people, I can take him. I'm telling you guys, I can take this guy. Well, word gets back to Saul, and King Saul is not hopeful either. King Saul tells David, hey, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. Every single soldier beside David in Israel has lost hope. And they've done it for an important reason. And this will inform us. Remember, hope has three elements. Imagining, wanting, and believing. So let's run it down. Could the other Israelite soldiers imagine Goliath being defeated? Yeah. Did they want Goliath to be defeated? Absolutely. Did they believe they could defeat Goliath? No way. And that's what they lacked. That's why they didn't hope. They didn't believe. Why did David continue to believe that he could do it when older, bigger, and more experienced men told him he couldn't? Well, he had learned hope. David talks about it. He tells the king how when he was a little shepherd, a lion came, a bear came, 
carried off a sheep. He went after them, struck them down, and rescued the sheep. Now imagine you're in a field. You're watching sheep, and they're not yours. They're your daddy's sheep. You didn't pay for them. Daddy did. And a lion comes after one. And you're armed with a stick. What do you do? Well, David could have run. I mean, the only one to see him run would be the sheep, and they ain't going to talk. Nobody would have ever known except David and God. So David stayed, he prayed, and he did what shepherds do. He wasn't just guarding sheep. He was growing hope. He doesn't tell Saul, I learned I could defeat lions and bear. He said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. <clears throat> See, the truth is, you can sit in this church, any church, and hear somebody say, God is faithful. God will provide a hundred times in a message like this. You can read it a hundred times in a book, but you will never come to believe it in your heart until you live it in real life. Until you get out and do it, you won't know it. If I get up to receive tithes and I say, God blesses the generous man, he will prosper, and I quote scripture to you, he will be my provider when it looks impossible. Honor him with the first. I'm preaching to you from 18 years old. So I have lived the experience up and down. You couldn't move me off any legal argument you come up with that God won't take care of me. I've lived too much experience just like David has. I, I have total hope constantly God will provide when the government won't, when your job can't, when it looks like it's impossible. I've got the experience. I've got the t-shirt. I've been to the rodeo. If you haven't, all you do is have an opinion, but you have no hope. You can't have that kind of hope until you actually face the giant. You go through it. So there's a big difference between hoping and wishing. Wishing doesn't cost you anything. Hope includes a joyful embrace of my responsibility. Hope pushes me. Hope energizes me. Hope acts. Therefore, hope grows. And one of the secrets of high hope people is they are constantly imagining and wanting and believing and then moving toward what they hoped for. Now, that that doesn't require always some big dramatic change. Mostly it's learning to apply hope to the ordinary challenges of life, like David the shepherd did. Maybe you're struggling with working at home. You want to procrastinate and give less than your best. Well, then maybe your goal should be to spend 15 minutes uh, happily interacting with a coworker online tomorrow. Maybe you've been laid off. You're tempted to lose hope. Well, you could spend an hour networking on the phone tomorrow, hopeful of a contact. Well, Rick, my kid's been trying to get a job out of college or school. Nothing's open. It's laid off. And networking in a family like this, I can say, well, I know two people who are in charge of a corporation. Let's talk to them. And they said, I can get you a job. I can bring you on. Networking here. See, God's got the provision. So I'm hopeful there's no hopeless situation. I, maybe you're physically lethargic. I have a lot of friends that are. A lot of people wrestling with that. Well, you could spend an hour just walking outside. Go for a walk. You can do that. Maybe it's a tough parenting challenge. You know, this past season with the pandemic has been tough on everybody, but I have to say it's a, it's a killer for parents with young children. An Israeli mom with four children 
two computers and a never-ending pile of, what's that, messages. She lost it. She went out to her car and she recorded <coughs> a 90-second rant. She said, I go from one child to another. Here's science. Oh, no, here's math. How am I supposed to know all of these things? Now our children will find out how really dumb we are. It's not right, really. The music teacher of my youngest sent over a musical score this morning. What am I going to do with that information? Do I have some kind of a band in my house? I can't read music. Just one second. Let me pull out my clarinet and help my son with his score. All day long, it's how's the child feeling? How's the child feeling? He's spending the entire day on his cell phone. He's fine. He's sleeping fine. He's eating fine. How's he feeling? Ask me how I'm feeling. I'm falling to pieces, she said. Well, her rant has been translated into 20 languages. It's been seen gazillions of times all over the world. <clears throat> and I'm sure some of you have felt that as well. If you're a parent, it's really hard. Let me tell you, if you're a single parent, oh my goodness, it might seem impossible. You're facing a financial challenge or a job challenge or a health challenge. You're elderly, you're vulnerable, you're single, you're alone. It's really, really hard. You're not crazy, but don't despair. You're not alone. The God who rescues from lions and bears and giants will rescue you too. He says he will be with you too. So it was in everyday trials when nobody's watching in an unglamorous job, keeping a bunch of sheep on the backside of a desert that David was becoming a world-class hoper one bear at a time. And God might use that little bear that you have at home to grow patience and hope in you. It can be a very helpful thing to actually name your commitment to growing hope. Maybe to tell God like in these words, God, I can't do this on my own. True. But you and I together can. God, I am committed to seeking your help and with you growing in my hope. Now, a primary gift that God uses to grow hope with all of us is the gift of other people in your life. So this is something else hopers do. They build relationships of hope. David had a friend named Jonathan. He was actually the son of King Saul. He was heir of the throne. Jonathan should by all rights have become king of Israel himself. But instead, we're told one day, Jonathan gave to his friend David his royal robe, his tunic, his sword, and his bow. Well, why did he do that? It was a clear symbolic way that Jonathan is naming David rather than himself as the future king. It's one of the most breathtaking moments in Scripture. It's an unbelievably noble sacrifice. Jonathan does this. David, when I look at you, I see a king. When I look at you, I see God's anointing. That doesn't bother me. I'm not jealous. I celebrate that, David. You're my friend. I want you to always remember who God made you to be. Every time you wear this robe, every time you hold this sword, I want you to remember. I want you to never settle for anything less. Can you imagine how that might have impacted David? I mean, they were young men, young friends when this happened. And shortly after that, they got separated by circumstances beyond their control. And David would never see his friend Jonathan again. And Jonathan would die relatively young. But that friendship marked David to the end of his life. I wonder how often through the years David pulled out that sword, looked at it, and he's all alone. Maybe he pulled it out when he was on the run, when he won a great victory or when he repented from a great sin. He'd pull out that robe and remember 
what his friend called him to. I think the contrast between Eliab, David's brother, and Jonathan, heir of the throne, is amazing. I mean, the man who was born to be David's brother became his rival. And the man who was born to be David's rival became his brother. Amazing. Only God can do that. The friendship of Jonathan grew hope in David. So the first thing for you to do is think of the Jonathans in your life. Identify them. Go thank them. Tell them, take good care of yourself, dude, because I can't afford to lose you. Let them know what they mean to you. And maybe you're thinking, I don't really have a Jonathan or I could use more of them. Well, start by deliberately contacting at least one person each day than you would otherwise and find some way to encourage them, to give them hope. There may never be a season in our lifetime where people appreciate or need encouragement and hope more than the season we're living in now. I did that with a good friend the other day who's been trying to find a physical remedy for a problem that's gotten worse and worse and submitted to long interrogations, out of state, all kinds of tests and medical tests uh, at great expense and great discomfort over a week and a half period, and they couldn't identify the cause. So a spirit of heaviness and depression settled on my good, happy friend. Well, I need to be a Jonathan. I want to bring hope. This fight ain't over. We're going to continue to pray. Buckle up, buttercup. This fight is just beginning. We, what would I'm trying to do? Increase hope in my brother. Yeah. You can be a hope bringer too. Next week I'll talk about hope killers. But right now we're talking about growing hope. And you can do that for other people. I spoke a few years ago about Summit being a three-chair church. And that's taken from Psalm 78, where David says, that which our ancestors passed on to us will not, will not neglect to pass on to our children. The past, the present, the future. The future generation, see? It's the idea of a chair for those who came before us. Now this is our day, and these are our children who are going to come after us. So we don't want to neglect any of those chairs. We love that kind of connection. It's one of the best parts of our DNA as a church. Anybody can be a hope passer. It's not just other people who help us hope. It's that, but it's not just that. You got even better help than that. And that's the next step in growing hope. The third one, invite God into your hoping. Bring God in to your hoping. When David was young, the prophet Samuel anointed him. Saul the king employed him. The army loved him. People sang songs about him. And everything he touched turned to gold until one day it didn't. Until King Saul got jealous and tried to kill him. Over time, David lost his home, his job, his income, his status, his security, and his best friend. How was your day? He spent 10 years on the run. He lived in a cave. He sheltered in place in a cave. Oh, but he attracted some followers. But they weren't much to write home about. <laughs> the Bible describes them this way. All who were in distress, in debt, or discontented gathered to David. Merry Christmas, David. Joy to the world. And he became their leader. How would you like for that in your small group? Dear Jesus, the three Ds. And to make things worse, one day 
they returned to their little makeshift village. It had been raided by the enemy. Their possessions, their wives, their children, gone. They were sheltering in place. Then they lost their place. And when that happened, we're told, so David wept and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David was literally cried out because it couldn't get any worse until it did. David was greatly distressed because the men are now talking about stoning him. I, I bet he was greatly distressed. He's lost everything. He's a fugitive. He's a failure. He, he's a marked man living in a cave. His own ragged little community staff, whatever, ready to kill him. He had literally nobody to turn to until he did. And one of my favorite statements in all of the Bible is, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. Wow. When you ain't got anybody to blow sunshine in your face, you're going to have to encourage yourself in the Lord. That's really important. What do you think that moment was like? What kind of thoughts do you think passed through David's mind? How do you think David imagined his future, that part of his hope to be king? I'll tell you what I bet David didn't think while he was encouraging himself in the Lord. I bet he didn't think, oh, God, this cannot be happening to me. Oh, God, those stones are going to hurt. Oh, God, I'll never be king. God, I'd have been better off if Goliath killed me. Listen, God is never a God of discouragement. Never. On your worst day, never. The text does not say, then David discouraged himself in the Lord. And God was glad because he loves it when we grovel. No, God may bring painful thoughts like conviction of sin or a prophetic challenge to work for justice and goodness, but God never brings despair, ever. I asked a wise friend some years ago, how do you assess the state of your soul? And his first statement was very hope-related and pretty striking. He said, I'll, I'll use it now to you. His question was, Rick, do I find myself getting more or less easily discouraged these days? He said, I find that when the peace of Christ is reigning in my heart, I don't get discouraged so easily. So take some time every day to become more aware of your thoughts. I'm not trying to fight them or control them. I'm just aware of when they're hope bringing or when they're hope robbing. And then invite God into my thoughts. For me, I just quote scripture out loud. When it looks like it's going to be a bad day, when I thought, well, how could they say that? How could somebody do that or whatever? Then I just go right back and quote scripture. I encourage myself in the Lord. I am not going to be hopeless. If God made me a promise, he says in Philippians 6, you need to hear this, that which I began in you, I'll perform it to the day of Jesus, come hell or high water. Nothing's going to stop it. It may look bad for the moment, but nothing's going to stop it. If I made you a promise, take it to the bank. Now, if the government says that, I'm not taking it to the bank. Every day ask yourself, do I find myself getting more discouraged or less discouraged or more hopeful? So get clear on where your hopefulness level is. If you find discouragement's a problem, remember, God wants to help you. Right now, in your little cave, you can do what David did. Invite the Lord in. You can't miss this moment now. Encourage yourself in the Lord. Here's what Psalms 42, verse 5 says. This is David. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. He's speaking to his soul. Hey, soul, knock it off. 
Why are you downcast? We serve the God of all hope. This fight's not over. Our life's not finished. We got a great future. Put your hope in God's soul, for yet I will praise him, my Savior and my God. So you understand that when we say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about us, our bodies. We're talking about our lives. That's where the Holy Spirit wants to come and dwell and leads us to the final dimension of growing, and we're through. This is about hope. Guard really carefully your ultimate hope. Now, I don't mean your hope about tomorrow or next week or next year or a hope for this relationship or a hope for that job, but your ultimate hope in life. What is your ultimate hope? What do you put your ultimate hope in? One of the great statements about David is found in the New Testament. It says in Acts, Now when David had served God's purpose in his generation, he fell asleep, was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. So David had his day from when he was young and full of promise to when he was an old man. David got some things right, and David got some things wrong. But he served God's purpose. You can do that. You could put your name into that verse. For when Larry or Sue or Rico or Stella or Junior or when you served God in your generation. Now you may know in the New Testament one of the most important titles given to Jesus is the son of David. Now that's, that's not a distinction any other character in the Bible gets. Jesus is never called the son of Moses, the son of Abraham. Well, why the son of David? Well, it couldn't be because of David's giftedness. It was not because of his moral track record. Dear God, it was a title of hope. It was under David, the kingdom of Israel was united and flourished for a season. After his son Solomon came, then there was division, exile, darkness. David was the one brief shining moment Israel could never forget. Well, brings to my mind, I think of a kingdom in our day that knew unprecedented joy and success, and then it was plunged into darkness. The Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> when opponents came to town, the presence of the Cowboys appeared to them, and the glory of the Cowboys shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The Cowboys wore the crown. Then in this season came darkness and losing and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Well, Israel would look back and dream dreams, and they would think, one day, one day, we'll have a king like that again. One day, the glory will come back again. Well, that King David wrote at the end of his most famous Psalms, 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, that's not just hope. That's ultimate hope. Hope is so powerful when it's clear that you won't, you won't get what you're hoping for, and that'll happen when death comes. I'm not hoping for that, but I have an ultimate hope. And that will lead to the question, what have I put my hope in? Where is my ultimate hope? See, it is David in the Psalms who told his soul, put your hope in the Lord. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think maybe David was an old guy when he said that. Long gray beard maybe, wrinkled face like Joe Namath. But he remembered when he was young and handsome, and that strange old prophet came and poured oil all over him, said some mysterious words that began it all. 
and how on that day the Spirit of God came on him and how David decided the way that young men and young women do that when he was in charge and when he was leading, things would be different. He'd get it right. Okay, sometimes he did. Sometimes he got things so wrong. But something inside David said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He didn't say, I think I might. He didn't say, sure, it would be nice if I could. He's a stubborn guy. This David, he had the heart of a racehorse. He said, I will stand in the house of the Lord. I may make a mess. I may spill on the rug. I may knock down the lamp. I may break all the expensive stuff. I may eat the pasta I'm not supposed to eat. I know what a pain it is to have me in the house. I know, I know that, but I tell you what, you'll have to drag me out of God's house kicking and screaming. I ain't leaving. I'm stuck on the Lord, and you can be that as well. It's Jesus' house, and one day he'll come back, and one day the glory will return, and one day he'll put the crown on his head and set his house in order, and if you put your hope in Jesus, if you make him your forgiver, your savior, your leader, your friend, he is your hope your fallback hope, your world-class hope, your ultimate hope. Because we don't hope in hope, we hope in a person because hope has a name and that name is Jesus. He is the hope of the world. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hey, thanks again for joining us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and share it with a friend. Follow me by visiting the links in the description. I'm praying today that God richly blesses you this entire week.